Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, hello there. Welcome in to Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 187. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got a couple of fine conversations for you this week on the program. A little bit later on, Carrie talks with legendary drummer Carmine Apice. Up first, though, our friend writer Colin Fleming. Got a lot of things going. A recent book on Sam Cooke. A new one out now on the 1951 film Scrooge as well. We talked about a variety of topics with Colin, including the recent Beatles documentary, Get Back, the Christmas time writings of Washington Irving, and even a little hockey, the greatest wrist shots in NHL history. Here's Colin Fleming on Downtown. Let's start with uh, what so many people are talking about, the Peter Jackson Beatles documentary. You wrote a, a terrific piece uh, for the Daily Beast. I got paywalled out of the Wall Street Journal piece, but I assume that was also great. <laughs> Here's hoping. You should have, uh, I could have uh, sent you the the file. I should have thought of that. My bad. I think it gives you like a limit of how many things you can look at. Sometimes I'm locked out of my own thing and uh, daily beast things like that. Like I couldn't see the Paul McCartney one until recently. So that was the longer one. That was the 3,000 word one. It was about the entire shebang. And the Wall Street Journal one was an op ed about the 1970 film, Let It Be. So this time a week ago, I had just gotten the advanced screener link from Disney. They didn't give me a lot of time. So it was just sitting there for almost eight hours and then writing the 3,000 word piece. And uh, I would say that I took it, the docu-series, in ways that other people didn't. I saw a lot of things written about it, of course, and discussed on Twitter and Facebook. I thought a lot of it was off. and I thought a lot of it was oversimplification. And I think that comes with people these days just saying whatever they want to say and not really being immersed in the subject for a long time. Because when you are immersed in a subject for a long time, it's as if you can go inside the heads of the people there. And I think it also helps, too, to be someone who's a writer who thinks in terms of character and human nature and that sort of thing. Well, I think also people project what they want to see, what they believe they saw over the course of those seven plus hours. Oh, sure. That's a good point. I saw this guy yesterday, for instance, and uh, he was on Facebook. He had all this broken grammar and everything, but we had like 46 friends in common. And I thought, broken grammar, friends in common, it's probably in publishing. <laughs> and so his, his heyday in publishing was like 1996, it's like with the Phoenix and stuff like that. I went to his Facebook page, and he said, I just saw the first episode of Get Back. It was really depressing. I don't like it. It sucks. <laughs> a few hours later. He's like, it's a few hours later. I'm watching the second episode. They're so happy together. I love those Beatles. Get Back is brilliant. <laughs> thinking like, you are unstable, sir. And <laughs> But that was what he wanted. You mentioned projection. That's what he wanted to see. He wanted to see. I have a term for it, Kimball. I think he can catch on. Care bearism. That's what he wanted. And mm. these were not guys that were happy in each other's company. And I hear theories that people advance, like, oh, yeah, Paul McCartney. He knew his friend John Lennon was really struggling. 
So he tried to be altruistic and quiet about it without letting anyone know by encouraging the band to start this project so quickly after the White Album. And it wasn't that quickly. It was a few months. I mean, the way I am, I feel like something from five minutes ago is ancient history and it's time to prove myself again. But that's not how people tend to work. And the reason McCartney was so gung-ho about starting, I'm sure, was because he was a creative. He wanted to keep going. And he also knew, it's really, I think this is a key point, He's the protagonist of the docuseries. It's, it's his journey more than anyone else's right. journey because the others have already accepted something that he's having a hard time getting to that point. And they've reached that point. They haven't officially reached that point, but they know. And I think McCartney was trying to milk everything he could out of this thing that was the only thing he did know. It's like the last week of senior year of high school. I mean, it wasn't for me. I didn't have a happy high school experience. But for a lot of people, I think they're trying to stay over that week, mm. milk it, and say, well, there's still five days left, and sort of bargaining with themselves that way. And so I really think the film, the docuseries, was, was his journey towards a kind of acceptance. That's, I mean, why, why do you think he wrote a song called Let It Be? Right. Well, and I thought your analogy in the Daily Beast piece about the you know, guys who have who've graduated from high school, but you're somehow still there and, and hanging around with their friends. And, and, and what do you do? You go to the safe places, and we saw that repeatedly throughout the series, that they went back to talking about the old times, remembering concerts, remembering the Cavern, remembering Hamburg, remembering uh, uh, the special they did in 64, and even going back frequently to play the old rock and roll songs that they started playing. Oh, spot on. And because if you know that Beatles special that you referenced from 1964 called Around the Beatles, it's not a very well-known special. And if you also know how the Beatles talked about themselves in the years going forward, they didn't have remarkable memories, but they had sort of remarkable didactic recall during this period. They were that focused, like, remember that time sophomore year? And I bring up high school, I think that's an apt analogy, because that's how long these guys have been together. Right. Not that they've been together. They've been together in a way against the world. They were locked in on each other because in large part, they were in a situation that no one really understood. And you can see that even Mal Evans is an outsider among the four mm. during all of this. And it's like, even George Martin was, a, I thought, a more of an outsider. He just sort of strolled through, would nod once in a while, but, but was really not an active player. He wasn't keen on this project and the direction it was going, for one thing. And you can tell him be this forced cheerleader at times, where he's saying, everyone got along really well today. It's going great. It's it's not going that great. He's trying to build up momentum. And the person that he does connect with, and I wrote about this, is McCartney. They share a wavelength because Martin is, is a natural producer. He's natural with music. And McCartney was natural with music. The other three weren't natural musicians. Lennon certainly wasn't. And he was able to use that to his benefit with how he would write songs. And George Harrison is a guitarist. There's this big push to canonize St. George. But the truth is, Harrison was really a miserable prick. He was someone who would drone on forever, boring people about his interests that they didn't share. He was notorious for this. But it's become the vogue to make him. He was the talented one. He wasn't. That's, that's silly. Not compared to the other two. 
And as a guitarist, when McCartney wanted to, and I think that's what led to this tension during this moment, talking about guitar playing, McCartney could paste him. McCartney plays that solo on Taxman. George Harrison couldn't play that. It's just that everyone fell into their role, and you have to have people in their roles. Like, somebody has to lead off. Somebody has to start on the mound. Like, it has to work that way. It's just how it has to go to fill out the roster. And they filled out their roster of four, and they took it as far as they could go. And watching it, it's like I also wrote, Abbey Road becomes something of a minor miracle that they got to it, that they could do it. But as I think we've discussed before, they also didn't have the songs at this point. They didn't have songs at the level that they had previously. They had a lot of fragments, and they were able to, I'll use it as a verb, beetle those fragments into something larger than what they were on their own. But really, the crux of the Beatles, their genius, is in the song. And now they were out there. It's like the pitcher on the mound. It doesn't have his best stuff. He's going to gut it through that, Frank Tanana it through that given baseball game. But eventually it's going to catch up with you. And it caught up with them and their solo careers. And the personal dynamic is so fascinating. Ringo... Look, everybody loves Ringo. Why not? He's just trying to he's just trying to get along. Uh, George clearly can't wait to get away from the rest of them all. And there, there's that moment when he says, you know, I've I've written so many songs. I've got my Beatles output for the next 10 years. <laughs> and I just want to I just want to make my own album. But you wrote about it, that that connection between John and Paul. And we see it time and time again, uh, that magic, even though they were they were going at each other a little bit and perhaps with some some gloves on, but boy, when they clicked, it was like nothing else, and, and the other guys would just be off at the side watching and taking it all in. They didn't even need to be getting along or be talking for one to denote the energy between them. Some people just have a connection. We've talked about connection. I think connection is something that most people will never have in their life. Now, they won't say that to themselves because they have to think about being connected to at least somebody in a certain way, but that doesn't make it real. I've only had in like my life, I'd say one real connection. I've had people that I've counted on and been there for and loved and things like that, but that's different. We're very fortunate to ever experience a true connection. And when you have that connection and the person can leave and you can leave or you can fight and fall out or whatever it is, if you are back in the same place again, you will be connected once more because you always have been. It's something beyond what you say. There are sometimes energy bonds between people. And I think that's what you can actually see in this film. You can see those energy bonds between Lennon and McCartney. And I write about one of them quite specifically when Harrison is stormed off. He's quit the band, like started earlier during the White Album sessions. And McCartney is going through Get Back, and he needs this word to fall in, something uh, left her home in blank, blank, Arizona. He doesn't know what the word should be. He knows that it has to have two syllables. And finally, he lands on Tucson. And we find out, because he has to explain it to him after, Lennon doesn't even know what Tucson, Arizona is. He doesn't know it's a city in the American Southwest. But as soon as McCartney lands on that word, 
Lennon gives them this look, mm. and they're just they're moving forward. That's all they need. They don't have to have yeah. anything else, and there is no one else in the world, I think, that who could have given McCartney that look that would have meant that to him. And I don't mean like meant it like, oh, be still my heart. This is what it means to me emotionally. I mean like that look of the rock, and it's like, yes, this is right. On we go. Now, I, I remember seeing Let It Be a couple of times, but it's been uh, probably 40 years since I've seen it, so my memory's a little faded. And uh, I, I don't think this replaces Let It Be in telling the story of the Beatles. I look at it as another chapter, and, and people who want to oversimplify and say, well, Let It Be was about the band breaking up, and, and this is about how much they loved each other. Man, I think that's way too simple yeah. uh, because they weren't, they weren't simple guys. You saw all shades of it in this eight hours of, of Peter Jackson culling through the archives, and to me that's what made it good is that I, I didn't take it as, as the definitive story of the Beatles, but certainly a more in-depth one that showed us both sides. Well, I'll tell you what it was. It was mismarketed because of this age of having to pretend everything is Care Bears. Because I had written about this in the blog a number of times, that I was quite hesitant about this docuseries from everything I'd read about. It was going to show that the Beatles weren't going to break up. Well, I knew that they were, and I knew why they were, and I understood it. And so I was wondering what this was going to look like, how that could possibly be rammed in, this idea of happy, happy, Harry Krishna Beatles, because that wasn't the reality. And so even after the docuseries came out, Jackson was saying, oh, it's so happy. It's, it's not. It really isn't. It's not what it claims to be in the official literature from Disney and from Jackson. It's closer to let it be that way because it's the reality. It's what happened. And when they go back to these old covers and this music and everything, do you ever have that friend in high school and maybe like you weren't that popular and he wasn't that popular and maybe you didn't get along that great, but you kind of bonded over music and it was the thing you took solace in. It was your comfort zone. It was your safety space. It was the kid coming home from school and sitting on the bed and putting on the headphones and cranking the real me off Quadrophenia by The Who, which is largely what Quadrophenia is about. I think that's what the Beatles were, too, because these were guys who became friends for a number of different reasons. But one reason that we can't underrate is their record collections. Mm. That's what they sat around and bonded over. That was always their main love. And it was that first main love that bonded them together, maybe more so than like Lennon thinking, oh, this little kid Harrison, which is how he saw him, is like so cool, and he's playing raunchy on the bus and everything. I don't think he looked at it that way. I think he looked at it like, oh, he likes Gene Vincent, like I like Gene Vincent. And he had a different kind of connection with McCartney. But it's not this happy thing. There really aren't any, I would say, blissful moments in it, like the ones that Washington Irving, even amidst sadness, is able to find when he writes about Christmas, as we'll get to it. It's just real. And it's just something, it's almost like Brady and the Patriots. Like, things just end. And there can be a great power in a goodbye. And I think we underrate that because we're always like, first impression and hello, pleased to meet you. Let's see where this goes. But you can do a lot for someone and you can do a lot for yourself by saying goodbye to them the right way. We're talking with Colin Fleming here on Downtown. Well, let's move into uh, the realm of Washington Irving and his writings 
about the Christmas season from the sketchbook of Washington Irving. And uh, these are just, uh, they're wonderful. I, I, and I wonder, uh, if, as you look back at that time period, uh, how, how important is Washington Irving along with Dickens in creating what we think of as Christmas? Washington Irving usually gets the Halloween. Like, you can have Halloween in Dickens' and Christmas. <laughs> and Washington Irving goes to England. So he's writing about Christmas in a way as this outsider amongst these customs. He's in the old place. He's not in, like, the, 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 the newer version of what England was or has become or anything like that. And he's sad. He's lamenting. And it can give us comfort now, although it doesn't give me comfort to think about how Washington Irving would think about our times. He's lamenting that the world has become too worldly and idiosyncratic customs, the nooks and crannies of what goes on in specific towns and villages and uh, parishes and things of that nature is being lost. It's still there. You know where to look for it, he says. But it's losing that quirkiness. So it's becoming homogenized, in other words. Can you imagine what you would think right now? <laughs> like seeing like the popping on the Hallmark Channel and the Starbucks coffee cups, like kind of soulless and everything, like no idiosyncrasies. You have to really work to find them now. So I think he'd he'd struggle with that. But he talks, as Dickens does too, about this idea of life for others and charity and how the days are shorter, but you go inside and there is the burning hearth fire and how that sort of contains summer within the house and it lights up mm. the faces and when the faces are lit up. They're lit up in a way that they wouldn't be in July or at any other time of the year. And he takes great store and stock and faith and hope in that. And and talking about the relationship with nature and how that changes with the seasons. He does. He says, normally, get this kind of joy. It's a very Thoreau type of idea. We have to go to nature. And John Clare would agree with that, too. And as you know, John Clare wrote so memorably about Christmas. Like these are guys that I would really like, hey, throw, hey, what's up, Claire? Hey, what's up, Washington Irving? What up, Charles Dickens? And uh, I'd like to get together with them and like maybe go out to like Bova's here in the North End for a slice of pizza in the North End. I think we'd have a really good chat about, about Christmas because they see in it the things that I see in it. And I think the things that I see in it, I've always loved Christmas so much, are not really what at least other people talk about as what they see in it. So I've always retained that childlike fascination with Christmas. And I think I told you one time about I would go to this bar and the bartender, I was distraught about something. Someone had been rude to somebody outside. It was Christmas season. And he said really flippantly to me, so what do you expect people to be nice to each other because it's Christmas? And I just, I remember saying to him, like, yeah, yeah I, I actually kind of do. I mean, not just because it's Christmas, but uh, I'd like to see that right now. I mean, do it do it at least once a year. And Washington Irving is definitely, he's writing about that too in this mini essay that kicks off a series of, because he didn't stop with this. He's like, oh, I should do more of this. And he walks us deeper and deeper into his Christmas experience. Mm. And it ends up becoming like some of the lengthiest 
altogether, writings within the sketchbook. And for people who don't know, the sketchbook has Rip Van Winkle, and it has The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. So it's really still like his most famous book. Did these writings, along with those of Dickens, did they create a, a nostalgia for what Irving certainly felt was being lost in terms of our Christmas celebration? He's writing about something so early, and it's interesting because Dickens gets a lot of credit for like, oh, you created Christmas with the man who invented Christmas and all of that. And Dickens would have rode with that. He was a shrewd businessman, and he was someone who wanted money. Now, he didn't do his work for the purpose of getting money. I think I've mentioned to that quote from Thackeray. And Thackeray didn't like anything. He's like famous for not liking anything. He reads A Christmas Carol, and he says, this guy, I feel like I'm this way. I mean, it's certainly what I, I'm trying to do in my work. This guy has done something nice for you, reader, world. He's, he's trying to help you out. And that was by far the nicest thing Thackeray, at least so far as we know, said in his life about anything he read. And Washington Irving's that way. Thoreau's that way. And these days, because they're white males, you get the whole feminism thing. Oh, it's mansplaining and all this, like Thoreau's bad now. No. Thoreau's one of the three smartest people to ever live, and he has a kindness to match that. He also has something called purpose and standards. And it's okay to have standards for yourself and for other people. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you an optimist of hope for the human condition that you expect and want and ask more of it. And Washington Irving was that way, too. So, yeah, it certainly helped. But, like, when you read this now, you go back and it just rekindles everything you ever felt at, at Christmas when you were six or seven, and hopefully they were good Christmases, and, and how you want, like, your family to experience Christmas, and, and also kind of how you want to be and how you want people to be. And so I couldn't recommend this more to, to people out there looking for something maybe a little different to read. Yeah, I, I ended up reading several of the stories, and it, it was wonderful. All right, let's shift gears and, and talk hockey. You had me thinking on this one. Uh, the best wrist shots in the history of the National Hockey League. Yeah, I like that. And <laughs> people don't know. Maybe it helps to define a wrist shot. I don't know what people know. Do you know what I mean? You can't get in people's heads. You can't. That's one thing I've learned writing for 25 years. You can never assume that someone knows anything because you'll always be surprised. I'm not saying like that everyone should know what a wrist shot is, but like people don't know often what the word seemingly means. But a wrist shot is essentially when the puck never leaves your stick. So it's not a snapshot. A right. snapshot is percussive where you're, you're slapping at, although it's not a slap shot, doesn't have that wind up. Like Mike Bossy had a great snapshot and a great wrist shot. The wrist shot back in the olden days used to be called the sweep shot. So the puck is at the base of the blade of your stick, and you sweep it forward. It moves closer to the toe, and you flick your wrist, and that's where you get the torque. And it's the most accurate shot in all of hockey. Flap shots are famously inaccurate. Snapshots are somewhat better. Backhanders, uh, you kind of don't really know, which makes it difficult, along with the release angle for a goalie. But if you were to pick a spot, I'm going like top corner above the glove side, and I'm going to put it right under the bar, the wrist shot would be your shot to go with. All right. Now, I, I started being Bruin-centric, and I have no idea. 
So I, I, the first name that came to mind for me, just from recollection, was Raymond Bork. That's a great one. If you wanted to have a Bruins player right now, the answer would be Marchand. Most of his goals are off of wrist shots. For Bruins all-time, Bork, I would say. And Bork has one of the best ever in the history of the league. And what's interesting about that is that we almost never think of defensemen as wrist shot artists. Because what's a wrist shot going to do when you're out in the blue line? Mm. Uh, kind of useless. But Bork was so revolutionary. I don't think he gets enough credit for this in his thinking that he was able to get pucks through. He always did. The thing I would say if I was a coach to a defenseman, I would say, you're not going to score from out there. But that's irrelevant because you can help us score. Get it through. It's going to create a rebound, a deflection. That's really the aim of the shot from the point. If it does go in on its own without any help or a bounce, all the better. Fine. Awesome. But Bork understood this, and he would get that wrist shot through so often. You have to realize, too, I'm not sure if people are aware of this. He would lead the league in shots on goal quite a bit. This is during Mm -hmm. the era of Gretzky. And Gretzky, when he was still like, hey, I'm Gretzky. I'm like super goal scorer guy, too. I'm not just like 140 assists a year guy. Bork was leading the league in shots on net. And a lot of those shots, of course, were wrist shots. I would say probably the majority of those shots were wrist shots. And people will remember him from the All-Star Game the skills competition when he was out there picking corners and going four for four and busting up those pie targets and I think he was the first to go four for four. Those were obviously wrist shots. So from a Bruins perspective, I think those are two guys that you would you would cite one now, one from the past. It's like among the best they've had, probably the best. Well, another one from my youth that I came up with was Daryl Sittler. Oh, that's a really good one. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about him. He did have an excellent wrist shot. It helped to have like a wrist shot that was awesome in like the 70s. Oh, yeah. Because... That's when you could score with the wrist <laughs> shot. You didn't have you could beat goalies clean. And you can't really beat goalies clean now that often from that sort of like top of the circles distance where Sittler would score from. I mean like Phil Esposito would score in tight, but he was just whacking in rebounds. <laughs> right. It. Like Dino Cicerelli was another guy who scored that way. But not like a lot of wrist shots. I think the best wrist shot I've ever seen well two different ways to think of it mark messier coming down the off wing Mm. so he would take the wrist shot and you wouldn't expect the angle that he had he scored a lot of goals like that but only on the off wing but the best wrist shot overall i've ever seen in terms of velocity accuracy and this is key with the wrist shot is how quickly you get it off because that's what's going to help you score more often, I think, than anything else, is how quick your release is. Because if a goalie gets set, he's going to stop it. That's the entire thing. He's not in position yet, especially now. Joe Sackick of the Nordiques and then the Avalanche is, mm. I think, the best wrist shot artist in the history. Like, I don't think you get like a lot of pushback on that. But like Gordy Howe had a great wrist shot. And uh, like you mentioned, Sittler. And yeah, just I, guys who wouldn't necessarily. I had Fedorov on my list, and, and among current players, I don't know, would you put Ovechkin on that list? Well, Fedorov is a good one. Another Russian would be Vladimir Krutov, who played, like, in the 80s. Mm. Uh, Ovechkin, 
Yeah, I probably would put Ovechkin on that on that list. And Ovechkin is interesting because, well, he might be the best shooter ever. Because think about Ovechkin, wrist shot, obviously the slap shot, the one timer. Like he doesn't take a lot of slap shots. Like, hey, I have the puck. I'm rushing the puck. I'll take a slap shot. The slap shot for him, like eighty percent of the time, I'd say at least, is always that that one timer. But he does score for, especially for a guy right now. He does score a lot of wrist shot goals, and he's playing so well. I was writing about this in the blog this season. You can always tell with Ovechkin how well he's playing by how many assists he has and what his plus minus is. And people are like, oh, plus minus isn't a great stat. But when Ovechkin is doing more than just being a one-dimensional goal scorer, his plus minus is always like plus 16, I saw something like that. He's one of the assist leaders in the league. He's playing so well that I'm not really quite sure where this is coming from because he hasn't played like this in years, and he's 36. But, yeah, great, great wrist shot guy. One of the best in the league right now. Interesting topic. I enjoyed kind of going through the memory banks to see what I could come up with. You are a wizard of <laughs> of recollecting. Daryl Sittler, that was, that was a good one because Sittler wasn't like a 50-goal type of guy. He was an assist-first guy. I was pretty split with Sittler, but you don't think of him as like a huge goal scorer. Like I think I mentioned Bobby Clark. Like He wasn't a huge goal scorer. He was like a 30-goal and 70-assist guy. But he had a good wrist shot, too. Colin Fleming. Uh, Colin, what's uh, the latest on the Scrooge book? You can pre-order it now, right? You can, uh, yeah. I think it's out. (laughs) I feel like I should know. I think it's out tomorrow. So you should be able to uh, get it at least, I don't know, Kindle or something like that tomorrow if you want it. Excellent. And is that the, the, the American release or the British release? Uh, it's, it's that Amazon, Kimball. I, I would think that, uh, I don't know. I haven't checked. Like, I, I just work. But I would think if you have Amazon, you can get it through Amazon.ko.uk, too. And I'm sure you can get, like, the download of, of the Kindle or whatever the term is from that, like, in a matter of of hours on your on your device. And everything's weird, too, with uh, printing schedules and all that. Right. So I'm just hoping it's okay. But uh, I, I, it's, it's hard for me sort of to, to shill for something I've, I've done, but it's awesome. I'll just say it, Kimball. It's the best film book ever written. And it's so much more than a film book. People will like it. And hopefully you, my friend of the season will uh, like it because, because that matters to me. So yes, tomorrow. Hooray. About- That's Colin Fleming. We'll take a break. A word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And we're back to talk with one of the legendary drummers in rock history, Carmine Apice, next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
right there from our next guest. Legendary drummer Carmine Apiece from Vanilla Fudge, Cactus, and more. Talked with Carrie to promote the 25th anniversary release of the box set Guitar Zeus. Here's the great Carmine Apiece on Downtown. Carmine, welcome to Downtown. Man, wow, one of the first gigs I did with the Pigeons. Oh, really? Yeah. We, we bought a van, and we went up to Bangor, Maine, and played one of our first gigs. That is exactly where we are, is in Bangor. Yeah. And if we played there, uh, I don't know where we played, but it was, a, you know, we had a manager that was managing us, and he, he bought a van for us so we can go out on the road. And that was the very first trip we took. Well, it's good to have you back, at least over the phone lines. Yeah, right? <laughs> Well, we're uh, talking to you today about this uh, 25th anniversary release of Guitar Zeus, and man, it is a wonderful collection of 35 tracks, three previously unreleased tracks, featuring some of the greatest guitarists of the rock world. And let me check my notes so I get this right. It contains four LPs, three CDs, and booklets of uh, photos and interviews done especially for this release. What was the process like to get this all together and, and ready to go? Well, you know, this was all released 25 years ago uh, with an idea I had uh, because I was trying to get a solo deal. And, and my friend who was a guitar player got a solo deal really quick since he left his main band. And I was trying to get my second solo album out, and it was, it was a housewife. So what do I got to be, a guitar player? And I had the idea to do this guitar album and call it Guitar Zeus. I said that in jest, and then I realized it's a good idea. So I followed it up, and we did it, and we sold 200,000 records back in the 90s. Mm. You know, but never really released it here, because over here, was, the 90s were all grunged out. Right. You know, we were like dinosaurs, you know. But that's why a lot of these guys were available. Like, Flash wasn't with Guns N' Roses, Brian May wasn't with uh, Queen, you know, Freddie died, and he had, didn't have anything to do. And, uh, you know, so it was perfect timing for all that stuff, but... Uh, it was, it was a great a great idea, and it's, it, it, you know, decades now, it's been still going. And uh, so I, I was with Deco Records on some other projects, and, uh, and I mentioned that I have this, it's 25 years, you know, in, in this year. I, it took longer to get out because the vinyl's taking longer to get now, mm. you know. But I told him, I said, uh, you know, like a year ago, I said, you know, next year's 25th anniversary of my guitar series project. They said, oh, we got to do a, a box set. I said, oh, that would be awesome, man. Yeah, it looks... And we added a couple of... Uh, I sent them some... Uh, some... Uh, that, you know, you know, DAT. Oh, yeah. And had mixes, you know, after we you know, record, then we take home and mix on the DAT. And so we put three of those on there, too, which is unique, you know, one of a kind. And it's, it's awesome, you know. And we put some new guys on. We put Tommy Thayer from KISS and... And uh, Derek Sherinian, who played keyboard like a guitar, you know, and a new kid named uh, Chris Pigiani playing like he plays like Van Halen, you know. So, and then we got some other ones that were never released, like Bumblefoot from Guns N' Roses and uh, and John Norum and there's this Japanese guy named Chaw, and just really great songs. And even if these guitar players weren't on there, the albums would be great albums because the songs are really good. I think there's some of the best songs I've been involved in in my career, and that includes 
you know, I wrote number one and I'm, you know, top ten songs at Rod Stewart, you know. Oh, yeah, and, uh, man, it is near impossible to, be, to uh, pick a favorite out of all the great music in that collect, in the collection, but uh, one that definitely jumped out at me You're was right. Under the Moon and Sun, which uh, features Edgar Winder uh, and Mick Mars. Uh, just a wonderful uh, song. Yeah. You know, and that's actually a Christian song. I didn't you know? know that. <laughs> the, lyrics, the lyrics, you know, Under the Moon and Sun, it's all about, you know, I'm with you under the moon and sun. It's, it's all about God. Yep, I didn't. I, I I can see that now, but it didn't. I didn't click until you mentioned it. Wow. Uh, hey, we're talking yeah, with the. Those lyrics, it's amazing. You know, it's really, I have this time, and some of the songs on there, like Code Nineteen. If you see the video that I did on Code Nineteen, it's all about the COVID nineteen. I mean, I mean, Kelly Keeling is he's a genius, the lyricist and the singer. You know, I mean, he comes out with a song called Code 19 and 95, talking about what just we just went through, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and if you look at the video on YouTube, you'll see it. And, and the song Brian May played on, uh, nobody knew. Nobody knew who's running the White House. It's painted all black now. You'd think they would mind. That was, you know, before Obama was in the White House, you know? It's, so it's a very visionary guy, Kelly. Amazing. We're talking with rock legend Carmine Apice here on Downtown to mark the 25th anniversary of Guitar Zeus being released in December. Uh, released December 17th, available for pre-order now at CarmineApice.net. Now, this isn't the only thing that you had uh, out this year. The re-release, you had a new instrumental album out last month, uh, Energy Overload with yeah. Fernando Perdomo. Earlier in 2021, the latest Cactus yeah. album, Tightrope, was released. What's still driving yeah. you to be so productive? Well, we had we had COVID <laughs> number one. I had a studio in my house. I just moved to Florida, and uh, I have, I built a studio in my house. So with that studio, you know, I was able to to work, you know, keep working. We also did a Vanilla Fudge single, "Stop in the Name of Love." You know, mm -hmm. I did it all in my studio, and and uh, the guitar just was recorded already, but any. Any other work, like percussion work and stuff that needed to be done on the track, I did in my studio. And I had my buddy, uh, Pat Regan, mixing that stuff. And I even produced a woman named Lisa G in the studio. And, you know, once you once you have a studio like this, you, you send stems and send stuff back and forth on the Internet. You know, like I listen to mixes for Cactus on, in the studio on the Internet through, uh, you know, through the, the whole COVID thing, you know, so... It just ha so happens that right now we're, we're working on a King Cobra record that we started a, a few months ago. But due to the, you know, the COVID, we, you know, we couldn't get together, you know. So now we're, we're just in the middle of it, you know. But uh, that's probably why. And then everything just came out, you mm. know. And the Cactus record is one of the best Cactus records we ever did. Yeah, it, 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 it was a great one. Oh, don't yeah. have a whole lot of time left, but I have to ask you a, a, about the uh, collaboration you have with uh, artist Eck Heck on the rock art Drum City. Uh, how that came about? Oh, the, the Drum City artwork? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Ed, Ed's a friend of mine. My, my wife was a radio personality in New York. She was called the Radio Chick, and he was a fan of hers, and then when we started getting together. He started coming to events of mine and met him and uh, and then he asked me if I said, Do you do any art? I said, Nah, I don't really draw art. He goes, 
I said, I can do our drums and stuff like that. He said, well, why don't we, let's, let's try and do something. So I said, all right, so I, I'll do something, and, you know. So I, I drew this thing called Drum City, where I made a little city out of drums. And, and you know, the hi-hat was in there with like a, mm. like a tower, like the Seattle Tower, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and then he colorized it, projected on the wall and painted it and everything. I, I said, wow. Yeah, so we started doing a whole bunch of that stuff. We sold a few, and we never really pushed it properly, you know? Because you know, it, it's not like a thing I wake up and say, I want to do some art, you know? So I'm still into the music, you know? It, it's great-looking stuff. People can check it out on your website. Carmine, thank you again for taking a little time to uh, chat with us, and best of luck with the re-release and everything else you've got coming up in 2022. Oh, thank you. And I'll be seeing you guys on the road for sure. It's one of those, you know... I think it's harder, Carrie, for a drummer to have a distinctive sound, but but Carmine of Peace is one of those handful of guys in rock history that you hear those drums and, and you know who it is. Oh, absolutely. He sort of set the tone for for heavy rock with his drumming in the uh, you know the mid to late sixties, and he's worked with everybody oh, over yeah. the years. And Vanilla Fudge, I mean, a couple of their songs were in that rare group of I, I think covers that were better than the originals. Mm. Certainly had, had a lot more soul in many ways to them and a lot more power, definitely. But uh, fun conversation there. Carmine of Peace on Downtown, the podcast. Our thanks to him. Thanks to Colin Fleming. And thanks to you as well. Hope you'll join us next time here on Downtown.